You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. So we've been, uh, as Tim talked about, we've kind of been in a series on uh, the character Gideon. We've been looking at his story from the Old Testament book of Judges, uh, chapter 6 through 8. And uh, Gideon has been called upon by God to deliver the nation of Israel from the oppressive, cruel hand of the Midianites that they've been kind of under their oppression for seven years. And they have kind of come as a nation uh, to the brink of starvation. And it's at that brink of starvation that they begin to turn back toward God. They begin to cry out uh, for deliverance. And then God raises up uh, the judge uh, Gideon to deliver them. And last week, we kind of looked at the beginning of Gideon's story there in uh, chapter six, uh, as Tim kind of talked about, you know, just hearing that call that God used that term, mighty warrior, um, I am with you. Uh, and we find Gideon kind of there in a uh, wine press and he's, and he's threshing weed and he's there because he's very, very fearful of the Midianites and uh, his obedience. We talked about that, his obedience and going and tearing down the altars of Baal, the, the Asheroth pole that his father um, had uh, erected there. And it was a testimony of their following, their worshiping, their serving of pagan gods. And then we uh, see also where uh, Gideon gets several signs, he, you know, has this offering that he prepares and fire from heaven falls and consumes that. He sees the signs and confirmations of not just one, but two fleeces that God uses uh, to reaffirm his call that he had indeed raised up Gideon to be the one who would deliver the nation of Israel. Now, as we come to uh, chapter 7, um, there really are kind of two main events that kind of unfold there in chapter 7. And the first main event occurs uh, in verses 1 through 8. And the second main event kind of occurs through verses 9 to 15. And I'm going to kind of look at both of those main events this morning. Now, that first main event that happens there in verses 8, uh, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, involves the formation and subsequent reduction of the army that God is putting together that Gideon is going to lead. And in Judges chapter 7, they're beginning in verse 1, we read, So Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many. Bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. 
And one group put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like a dog. And the other group put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouth in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provision and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home. But he kept the 300 men with him. What an amazing story that God brings 32,000 men who are going to be a part of the army of Gideon and they're gathering there getting ready for battle. And God sees this number, this 32,000, and he says to Gideon, you know what? This is way too many men because when they're victorious and, and Gideon knew that they were going to be, he said, God said, basically, they're going to take the credit for this victory. And so he says, before they go into battle, I want you to reduce the number. And again, in doing that, God kind of begins to confront one of the enemies that would kind of get in the way of what God was doing here. And that is the enemy of self-sufficiency. The sense that we can kind of do it on our own. We, we don't need God. We've got this. We can handle this. And so there's, there's this, this sense of self-sufficiency that is a part of the attitude, the makeup of those 32,000 men there. Now, again, self-sufficiency is, is rooted in pride. It's also rooted in arrogance. And its message is simply this. I don't need God. I can do this by myself. I can do this on my own. I've got this. And one of the problems I believe with self-sufficiency is that it's not relational. And God is very relational. From the moment mankind is created in the image of God, there in the Garden of Eden, those six days of, of creation, God has done everything. And his final act of creation is he created mankind in his image. And from that moment on, everything that God does, he does in relationship to mankind. He gives us authority over the earth, not to do it by ourselves, but to do it in relationship as a co-laborer, a co-worker with God, that we're exercising authority over the earth in and through our relationship with God. That's what I mean when I say God is very relational. Self-sufficiency, when self-sufficiency distances us from God, it becomes very non-relational. Self-sufficiency attempts to kind of rob God of the relationship he seeks with every one of us. And every time this happens, God is going to look for a way to minimize or to eliminate that. And so in this instance, he tells Gideon, you've got way too many men. So in order to avoid the temptation to think that they did this on their own, in their own strength, their own skill, God says, I need you to thin the herd. And then God does this by the second means that was alive and well there within the army of Israel, and that was the enemy of fear. So you had self-sufficiency, and now we discover there is great fear 
in the army of Gideon. Whereas self-sufficiency says, I don't need God, I can do this on my own. Fear essentially basically kind of assumes there is no God. God is not who he says he is or God is not able to do what he says he's going to do. Fear kind of assumes that, you know, I've got to kind of be my own God. I've got to kind of take care and look out for myself. So self-sufficiency says I don't need God. Fear acts as if there is no God. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy uh, first uh, chapter, verse 7. He says, God has not given us the spirit of fear or timidity, but of power of love and a sound mind. Now that word fear there in 2 Timothy, it's where we kind of get our word phobias. And it's kind of our, our English word phobias. And that word simply means running scared. And these men in Gideon's army were running scared of the Midianites. And one of the things that we learn there from 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, is that spirit, the, the, uh, the spirit of fear, it's a spirit, it's an entity that is at work in our lives through the presence of fear. And the spirit of fear kind of wants to bring us into a place where we doubt or we question God's presence, his goodness, his ability to do what he says he's going to do, to take care of us, to look after us. And when we yield to the spirit of fear, oftentimes it's going to manifest itself in ways that will kind of, again, diminish, it'll kind of dismiss, or it will replace God's spirit and manifestation in our lives. And so one of the lessons I think that we can kind of take away from these opening verses there in Judges chapter 7 is that we need to be on the lookout and we need to be aware, are we operating in a spirit of self-sufficiency? Are we operating out of a spirit of fear? And just as it took out many in the army of Gideon, self-sufficiency and fear will take many out of God's army. The other interesting aspect of this is what God used to kind of determine who would go and who would stay. So God tells Gideon, take the men down to a spring and divide them into two groups. And I want you to watch how they drink the water. And there it says that 300 men used their hands. They got down in the stream. They cupped the water in their hands and they drank it from their hands while all the other remaining men got down on their hands and knees and they put their face, their mouth and drank directly from the stream. Now, why does God use this as an identifying key between those who would stay and those who are left? Anyone who has ever been in battle will tell you, you always need to be on the lookout for your enemy. Because in a split second, your enemy can suddenly appear out of nowhere and you can be taken by complete surprise. The men who got down on their hands and knees and were drinking straight out of the stream, whether they realize it or not, they've left themselves completely open, completely vulnerable to attack. Their heads are down. All they can see is the water from which they're drinking. They can't see anything going on around them. They can't see anything happening above them. All they can see is the water from which they're drinking. The men who cupped their hands... These were men who were, again, 
marked as different. I see this oftentimes when I'm out hunting with uh, deer hunting. If you've ever watched a group of deer feeding, one of the interesting dynamics of that is that there are several deer with their heads down and they're kind of feeding in the grass or in the field. And several of the other deers, their heads are up. They're always looking around. They're sniffing the air. They're always watching for any kind of a predator that may be kind of nearby, ready to kind of pounce when all of the heads are down. And so it's kind of so interesting because they'll continue that. And then at just some certain point, there's like a signal among them. I don't know what it is, but you'll kind of see the ones that were feeding, their heads all come up. The ones who were not feeding, their heads go down and they kind of switch. So there's always within this herd of deer, there are the feeders and there are the watchers. And again, it's just very, very interesting how we see that same dynamic here. Those 300 men whose heads are up and they're drinking uh, from the water, they're completely aware of everything that's going on around them. They're leaving the enemy with little or no opportunity for a surprise attack. And these 300 men revealed themselves to be battle ready. They were battle able. They were very, very skilled. They were knowledgeable. They were trained for battle. And so God just didn't give Gideon 300 men. What's interesting to me is God gave Gideon 300 of the best, most skilled um, warriors available. And the same really is true for you and I as soldiers in God's army. We too need to be the very best prepared, skilled, trained warriors for Christ. And we can do this in a number of ways. For example, the Bible talks about us needing to put on the full armor of God there in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. And there it says a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all of the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Against mighty powers in this dark world and dark evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayer for all believers everywhere. So Paul shares with us there one of the ways that God equips us, that he makes us ready for battle, to be victorious over the enemy and to be able to, again, advocate the kingdom of God to forward to advance the kingdom of God upon this earth. And again, putting on the whole armor of God, every piece will go a long ways toward keeping us from the pitfalls of self-sufficiency and fear. The second main event we find in Judges 7 is found there in verses 9 through 15. And there we read, that night the Lord said, get up, 
And he's speaking to Gideon, go down to the Midianite camp for I've given you victory over them. But if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Perah. Listen to what the Midianites are saying and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. So Gideon and Purah went down to the edge of the enemy camp. The armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Gideon crept up just as one man was telling his companion about a dream. The man said, I had this dream, and in my dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. His companion answered, your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over the Midian and all its allies. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. Let me just give a couple of quick observations. First, it's interesting that after all of the signs and confirmations God had given Gideon up to this point, Gideon still seems to lack confidence in his abilities and what God can and will do through him. Go back to chapter 6. Again, God bring down, brought down fire and it consumed that offering. And then there were the two instances regarding the fleece, both, again, very powerful confirmations and signs that God had indeed called Gideon and wanted to use him to deliver the Israelites from the Midianites. And for whatever reason, those three signs, though very, very powerful in and of themselves, did not seem to be enough to kind of calm Gideon's lack of confidence. And I like how God was patient with Gideon in this. At no time does he rebuke Gideon, but rather I see God's patience with Gideon throughout all of this. And I think God was patient with him because I think God saw this was more about Gideon lacking confidence in himself rather than Gideon lacking confidence in God. There's a huge difference when we lack the confidence in ourselves or we lack confidence in God, in his promises, in his provisions. And so God sees that Gideon is really doubtful. He's really questioning his self-confidence in that. And so God is doing all that he's doing again to try to build that confidence in Gideon. We see in chapter 6 that Gideon kind of saw himself, he acknowledged, and he said, you know what, I'm the least of the least. We're the least of the tribes of Manasseh, I'm the least of my family. And it's interesting that God uses a loaf of barley bread there in that Midianite's dream. And the significance of the barley loaf is that the barley grain had only really half the value of wheat grain. And the bread made from barley was kind of considered inferior to wheat bread. And in the same way, Gideon kind of sees himself as inferior compared to the other tribes of Manasseh. He sees himself as inferior compared to those even within his own family. He sees himself as inferior as he kind of compares himself to the enemy of the Midianites. And just as that inferior loaf of barley was able to topple the tent, 
God would use Gideon. Again, who saw himself as inferior, not up to the task, that God would use him to topple the Midianite army. This is the same idea the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. Instead, God chose, purposely chose, things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things considered as nothing at all, and God used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. So everything that God was doing through these very powerful signs and confirmations was again to build confidence in Gideon that he was indeed this courageous, this mighty warrior that the angel of the Lord saw him. And God will do the same with us. Whenever we kind of lack confidence in ourselves, the Lord is always going to be looking at ways and utilizing opportunities to build confidence within us. And not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in Him, who He is, His promises to be with us. And that we can also be used to serve Him in the ways He calls us to serve. The second thing that kind of stood out to me is all of the signs and confirmations God used with Gideon were designed to be an encouragement to him. God said, go, go to the Midianites. I want you to see, I want you to hear something and it'll be a great encouragement to you. And that's the role of the prophetic in the church today. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse three, he said, the one who prophesies strengthens others encourages them and comforts them. I believe that the role of the prophetic is very much needed in the church today. One of the unfortunate things that happens oftentimes with the things, the tools that God uses to build his church is that oftentimes the enemy will kind of come by with something very close to that or God will, or he'll take that very thing and he'll kind of begin to corrupt it and twist it and begin to use it in a way God never intended for it to be used. We see that with the rainbow, right? And we all know that the rainbow was a covenant that God put in the sky it was a promise that God would never flood the earth again. And along came a group of people who co-opted that, took it and, and, and made it mean something it was never intended to mean or to represent. And so what do we do in the church? We abandon it. We can't use that because of what it signifies. Devil always does that. He'll do that with anything and everything that God uses. The prophetic is no different. Oftentimes we shun or we kind of are leery of the prophetic because we've seen its abuses. And they're out there. There's no doubt about that. 
I've seen it, you've seen it, ways in which the prophetic are used to be manipulative or maybe in ways that uh, it, it was never intended to be. And so what is our response when the prophetic or other things of, of God are, are abused or misused? And that, again, we forsake those. We, we don't, we don't want to touch those. But yet it is something that God used in Gideon. It's something the Apostle Paul encourages us that the one who prophesies that the gift of the prophetic is needed in the church today because its primary use, again, is to strengthen, to edify, and to comfort. And the Lord told Gideon he would be encouraged by what he heard, and he was. Even though the dream and the interpretation was given by his enemies, which I, I think is very, very interesting, God doesn't give the dream to someone in the uh, Israelite camp. God gives it to Gideon's enemy. So he, he hears this from the word of his enemy. And again, God uses many different ways to encourage his people. We just need to be willing to be receptive and even though Gideon lacked confidence in himself, he comes to discover that the Midianites lacked even more confidence in their strength and ability against the Israelites. One final thought from these verses. Gideon's response to the first sign there, if you go back and read that, uh, the, his, his first response to when, when he laid those uh, gifts on the altar, the sacrifice there on the altar, and it says that the fire fell from heaven and it completely consumed that offering. And Gideon's response to that very, very powerful sign is found there in verse 15. And it simply says there in chapter 6, verse 22, it says, O sovereign Lord, I am doomed. That was kind of Gideon's response when God does this. His response to the first fleece was a second fleece. His response to the second fleece was, I got to prepare for battle. But I want you to notice Gideon's response to the final sign involving the dream and the encouraging word he received. Verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. That's what God was after all along. Every sign, every confirmation, all God wanted from Gideon was that place of surrender, that place of worship, that place of, I trust you, God, to do what you say you're going to do. And I think it's the response God longs from all of us, regardless of the situations or the circumstances we find ourselves in in life. God finally arrives where God wanted him all along, at a place and a posture of worship. And this is ultimately the best place, whether we're in times of battle or we're in times of peace, whether we're in times of difficulty or times of ease, whether we're in, in times of plenty or in times of want. Once Gideon arrived at the place of worship, once he just bowed before the Lord, once he just surrendered himself to God in that place of worship, he no longer needed 
to worry about anything else. He no longer needed any other sign. He no longer needed any other confirmation. He was finally where God wanted him to be all along. And we will always be at our best and positioned to do our best from a place and a posture of worship. So let me just ask this question this morning as we close. What is keeping you from that place, that posture of worship this morning? What are maybe the circumstances, the situations in life this morning that maybe are kind of eliciting out of you maybe that self-sufficiency? Maybe you're in kind of a place of pride or arrogance this morning. Or maybe you're kind of walking in a spirit of fear this morning. Like Gideon, God wants to, to free you from all of that. God wants to bring you into a place of complete trust, of freedom. And this morning, that place is the place of worship. Just bowing before him, realizing we have nothing. He has everything. And he has offered to give us all things. That through that, that God wants to again meet us in that place of our weakness so he can become our strength. So I just encourage you this morning, is there a situation or a circumstance you're going through this morning? And you're wondering what your response should be this morning. I would encourage you to respond this morning the way Gideon did. To just respond in a place of reverence. And just to respond to whatever's going on in your life this morning from a place and a posture of worship. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand together this morning. We're just going to enter into a time of worship. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.